Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again deep dive the world of sport law as we examine the intersection of the Fourth Amendment and the world of sports. Beginning with a quick discussion of the United States Constitution, we will then move to break down the Fourth Amendment, focusing on why it was included in the Bill of Rights and its legal elements, before finally ending with a conversation about how it applies to the world of sports. So, if you ever wondered if the NCAA can legally require student-athletes to be drug-tested, or if the stadium and arenas that you've been to have the right to search your bag before an event, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to continue our exploration into the connection between law and sports by focusing on a constitutional amendment that I imagine most of you never thought would apply to the world of sports. In fact, I would go a step further and venture to guess that most people probably don't think much about this amendment at all, even though I know all of you have heard of it if you like watching those criminal procedural shows. And that is the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, more commonly known by people as the law that protects them from illegal search and seizure. But before we get into what that law says exactly and what it means and how it applies to the world of sports, I first want to begin, as we so often do, by setting the table and providing some background and historical context, both of which I think will help you better understand not only why the law is in place and why it is so important in our society, but also how the courts have interpreted the amendment over the years in relation to sports. Let's begin by first addressing the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, also known as the Bill of Rights. I know we've talked a little bit about the Bill of Rights in our past podcast on due process and the 5th and 14th Amendment, but just as a reminder, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution were added shortly after the Constitution itself was ratified. The Constitution itself became the official framework for the United States of America on June 21st, 1788. The Constitution was designed in its original form to guide how the government would operate and was made up of seven sections they called Articles. Article 1 through 3 are the ones we generally hear about, and those stipulate the structure and powers of the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the federal government, respectively, laying out such things as the structure of the Senate and House Representative, the process for passing bills into laws, the process of removing people from office, the requirements to run for office, and the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, amongst a plethora of other things. Article 4 the one that we don't hear much about, goes on to speak to the states, laying out what the relationship is between the states and between the states and the federal government. It also includes how new states are to be added to the country and that each state must have a Republican form of government within it. Article 5 establishes the process of amending and changing and adding on to the Constitution. And then Article 6 states that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land and thus holds legal precedent over all other laws at the state level. And finally, Article 7 lays out how the Constitution is to be ratified, noting it takes nine of the original 13 colonies to ratify the document to make it law. What you might notice missing from the document in those Seven sections, though, are the rights of the citizens and the protection of people from the government. 
initially, there was a lot of debate about this at the Constitutional Convention, with many people arguing that the Constitution did not need a Bill of Rights or a series of law that stipulated how citizens should be treated because the Constitution gave Congress the power to make laws of which they could later make laws if they thought they were necessary. And furthermore, the Constitution clearly stated that any rights not included in the Constitution were held by the states. Other argued, though, that they needed to create a list of rights that the citizens had in order to protect people from the government. They pointed to the actions of the English government, noting specifically activities of the king and how those actions infringed on the rights of the American colonies. This latter argument ultimately won out, with people really being fearful of having a king and going back to what was happening under the old English government. And this is extremely important to note because it helps explain why certain rights were included in the first 10 amendments. For example, the third amendment of the constitution states, quote, no soldier shall in a time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in a time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law, end quote. In other words, the government of the United States cannot force its citizens to house troops which nowadays might seem like a weird thing to include as an amendment. But if we consider what was happening back at the time of the Revolutionary War and before it, the English government and the king were forcing American colonists to house and feed troops, which cost those colonists a great deal of money and it intruded on their privacy. So if we consider that, then the inclusion of the Third Amendment all of a sudden makes sense. And the same can be said with things like the Second Amendment, which states the right of a well-regulated militia to keep and bear arms, which was included again as a direct result of the war in highly regarded belief that people needed the ability to protect themselves from the government, just like they had done with England. Many of the amendments not only were based on the abuses of English government during the colonial days, but they were also based on prevailing English laws of the time. Which brings us to our point of focus today, the Fourth Amendment, which is based both in English law and abuses the colonialists faced at the hands of the king. Just as a recap, in case you don't know, the Fourth Amendment states, quote, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against reasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall be issued but upon probable cause supported by oaths or affirmation and particularly describing the places to be searched and the persons to be seized, end quote. Like the other first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment was ratified on December 15, 1791. The essence of the amendment comes from an English maxim that, quote, every man's house is his castle, end quote. This was highlighted by the courts even more in a 1603 case in England called the Shaman's Case, where the courts established that homeowners could defend their houses from unlawful entry by the government unless the officers of the law were there to execute an order from the king. In other words, if the king told the officers to enter, they could. But if he didn't, then the officers could not just go to someone's house and enter it on their own regard. An even more famous English case was Entick v. Carrington in 1765 when the courts ruled that even though permission was granted by the king in the form of a warrant for officers of the law to enter a number of homes and search for material related to a radical politician, the actions of the officers were, quote, 
subversive of all the comforts of society, end quote, and, quote, contrary to the genius of the law of England, end quote. And thus, based off of those facts, they ruled that the searches were illegal. The officers did not have the right to enter the home, and their actions, once they entered the home, violated the rights of the homeowner. While this case was being heard in England, the colonialists themselves were being subjected to searches by the English government as well. You need to remember that back in these days, communication between the colonies in England took weeks, if not months. And so instead of requiring specific search warrants, officers in the colonies needed to only possess something called a writ of assistance. This document gave the person who possessed it the right to enter any house or any place they wanted at any time without notice to search for any prohibited or uncustom goods for their entire lifetime. What the officers were really looking for was contraband in goods that required that the colonists pay taxes. The invasion on people's property not only upset the colonists because they, like the English, believed that they had the right to privacy and the right to protect their property, but also because they hated the high taxes the king placed on them and often resorted to smuggling to get around paying them. The writ of assistance, though, made this much harder on them and thus cost them money, which they didn't like. So taking the English belief that a person's home is their castle and that they have the right to defend it not only from others but from the government, which includes keeping people out, and adding in the fact that the colonists were subjected to wide-sweeping searches by the crown, which often resulted in them having to pay money, it's easy to see why the Founding Fathers wanted to include the Fourth Amendment in the Constitution and protect Americans from the government entering people's property at will and taking things from them. But understanding the history and background of the law only tells us half the story. We next need to move to break down the law so that we can better understand how it applies to the world of sports. The first thing that we have to remember when we're breaking down the Fourth Amendment just like when we broke down the 5th and the 14th Amendment, is that the Constitution in general is designed to protect an individual's rights and freedoms from the government, not protect them from private individuals or private companies. Legally speaking, that means that in order for the Constitution and its amendments to apply, there must be something that we call state action. There is a small exemption, which is the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery and applies to the actions of private individuals. But besides that, we have to have state action in order for the amendments of the Constitution to apply. Just as a refresher from our previous podcast, state action refers to, quote, any action taken directly or indirectly by local, state, or federal government, or any of its components or employees, like a sheriff, who uses the color of the law to violate an individual's civil rights, end quote. So when the government does something, there's state action, and the Constitution applies. Or when a non-government or private entity performs a task or activity that the government generally performs, then there is also state action. And if a government resource is used by a person, then there's also state action. So, for example, if the government contracts out a company to build a public park, then the company that is performing the task of building the park is doing something that is generally charged to the government, which makes them a state actor, so they have to abide by the Constitution and federal laws. 
Likewise, even if the park is privately owned, but they allow the general public to use the facility, then the courts have ruled that they're providing a function that the government normally would, and thus they become state actors. We go on and on with an endless number of examples of state action in sports and recreation, but the key takeaway that we really need for this podcast is to know that high schools and colleges, which are generally public, but regardless, even if they're private, they are both state actors. High school athletic associations are state actors. However, the NCAA and the United States Olympic Committee have been ruled both by the Supreme Court to not be state actors. Professional leagues like the MLB, NBA, NFL are also not state actors. So the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to those private organizations. It only applies in situations where we have state action. Moving to the second legal element that we have to evaluate with the Fourth Amendment is the question of whether the conduct is a search or not. According to the courts, a search occurs when a reasonable or legitimate expectation of privacy recognized by society is violated. The question that becomes difficult for people is then what constitutes a reasonable or legitimate expectation? The short answer is, is that if a person doesn't expose something to the general public, then they have been found to have a legitimate expectation of privacy when it comes to the thing in question. So for example, Things that happen inside your house or your apartment, or even if you live in a college on a campus in a dorm room. Things that you keep out of the view or the earshot of the general public, you have a legitimate expectation that those things are private. So conversations that you have inside your house are private and cannot be recorded by police unless they obtain a search warrant. But let's say that you're yelling so loud inside your house or inside your dorm room that people outside of your house and the general public can hear what you're saying. In that case, the police do not need a warrant to listen to that conversation because it is a public conversation. You are showing that conversation to everyone. You could go on with other examples, but the general point that the Supreme Court made in a court decision of Katz versus United States was, quote, what a person knowingly exposes to the public, even in his own home or office, is not subject of a Fourth Amendment protection. But what he seeks to preserve as private, even in an area accessible to the public, may be constitutionally protected, end quote. But as is so often the case in law, The short answer doesn't always tell the whole story. And the long answer is that the expectation of privacy depends not just on what is being kept from the public eye or being exposed to the public, but also on where the person lives, but also on where the person is. In that same Katz versus United States decision, the court went on to say, quote, capacity to claim the protection of the amendment depends not upon a property right in the invaded place, but upon whether the area was one in which there was a reasonable expectation of freedom from government intrusion, end quote. That means the right to privacy varies depending on if you're at home, if you're at work, in a car, in a public park, and so on. If you're in your private house, there's an expectation that the government will not intrude unless they obtain a search warrant. But what about if you're in a public high school or a school in general? Well, now the situation gets a little bit more wishy-washy because on public grounds, those expectations that the government won't intrude are far less, making the possibility that the government or a government official coming in and searching you without a warrant far more likely to be legal. 
To quickly recap the second legal element that we need to look at, we must not only consider what the item is and the things that people have the right to keep private, but also where the person is. In general, something that is not in plain view of the public, something that's hidden away in private, you have a right to keep hidden away in private. Meaning that in order for the government to come in and look for the item, aka search for it, and come in and take an item, aka seize it, they have to have probable cause and most times a search warrant. But where you are and what the item is makes a difference. If you're a high school student on school grounds, your expectation of privacy for something in your book bag is far less than if you're that same student and we're dealing with something in your book bag, but instead of being on those school grounds, you're inside your house. Now, all that leads us to the third legal element in question of the Fourth Amendment, and that is, is the conduct a reasonable search? In other words, the context of the search, the events and the totality of the circumstances surrounding the search matter. And moreover, how a search is conducted also matters. To determine if a search was reasonable, we have to answer two questions. First, we need to address the question of if the search was justified at its inception. What we mean by that is we need to look at the reason for conducting the search in the first place. Was there probable cause? Was there, as the United States Supreme Court has said, quote, a fair probability that contraband or evidence of a crime will be found? Or was there a reasonable suspicion that a crime was committed? What we are trying to protect against here is a government or the government officials coming in and searching someone just because they feel like it. Instead, they have to have an actual reason for searching you. For example, the courts have said, quote, the existence of reasonable circumstances, reports, information, or reasonable direct observation leading to the belief that illegal drugs have been used can be used as a justifiable reason to conduct a search. Outside of that, you need to also look at if the search was reasonable in its scope, meaning was the extent and the reach of the search realistic? The courts have said that you can't just have a blank search warrant and come in and look wherever you want for whatever you want like the old English writ of assistance allowed people to do. Instead, you must not only be specific for what you are looking for, but also where are you looking. So let's say that you were involved in a hit and run accident that is captured on video. If someone provides that video to the police, then they have reasonable cause to conduct a search. They can take that to a judge, they can get a search warrant to come and find your car. The search warrant will lay out the scope of where they can search for the car. For example, it might say that the police have the right to come and search your residence to try to find the car or any other evidence that are pertaining to that specific crime. In that scenario, since we have direct observation that you committed a crime, and since the scope of the search is reasonable and directly tied to the crime in question, then the conduct would be considered a reasonable search. That brings us to our fourth and final legal element to this amendment, the nature and the immediacy of the government concern. With this element, the state actor must evaluate if the state's interest in conducting a search and or seizure was important enough to justify intruding on an individual's legitimate expectation of privacy. To make this determination, we use a balancing test, where we evaluate the degree of intrusion on an individual's privacy interest versus the government interest in conducting the search. If it's determined that the concern of the government is great, 
and there is an immediate need for the search and or seizure, then the individual, the state actor, does not need a search warrant to come in and conduct their search. Or, as journalist Eric Posner writes, quote, The court applies a balancing test in the Fourth Amendment cases, under which the police can search a person without obtaining a warrant if the degree to which the search intrudes upon privacy is less than the degree to which the search is needed for a legitimate government interest, typically in catching criminals and protecting police from danger. For example, the courts have established that if a police officer is making a lawful arrest, that they have the right to search and seize anything that is on the person and immediately surrounding the person. In this case, the interest that the government is preserving is they want to make sure that no evidence is destroyed, and they're trying to also protect their law enforcers. They want to make sure that the person doesn't have any weapons on them that they might be able to use to harm an officer. So there you have it, the four legal elements that we need to evaluate with the Fourth Amendment. First, we need to know if there's state action. Second, we need to look at was the conduct a search or not. Third, we need to ask the question, was it a reasonable search? And fourth, we look at what was the government's concern or interest involved in performing the search. Now, at this point, I'm sure many of you are thinking, this is all great, but what does all of this in the Fourth Amendment have to do with sports? When do we deal with seizures and searches in the world of sports? Well, the place that we most often see lawsuits challenging the Fourth Amendment in sports is dealing with drug testing, which, when I mention this when I'm lecturing and presenting on this topic, oftentimes brings up kind of a weird look on people's face because they've never really thought of a drug test as something that would constitute a search or seizure. But if we look at that second element, that is, is the conduct a search? And if we go back to the definition, it's pretty clear that drug testing does constitute a search. Let's think of it this way. Do people, generally speaking, expose their medical history or what's inside their body to the public? No. In fact, we even have laws in place that stipulate that a person has the right to keep their medical history private and that it's a crime for a doctor or someone else to disclose a person's medical history to others without their consent. So with anything that is related to what is happening inside a person's body, whether it has to do with drugs, whether it has to do with diseases that they might have, they have a reasonable expectation to keep that information private, which means that drug testing and other medical tests do qualify for Fourth Amendment protection. Knowing this, we then have to look to see if the other elements are present to determine if an individual rights were actually violated, which means we have to evaluate each situation on a case-by-case basis. So let's first begin by looking at a couple of different situations. First, a pretty straightforward and simple one, professional sport drug testing. The question is, can a professional sports league force their players to take drug tests? To answer, let's begin by evaluating those legal elements that we outlined above. The first of those elements is that there has to be state action. And with professional sport leagues, the courts have continually found that despite how hard some athletes have tried to argue, there is no state action. Leagues are obviously not a part of the government. They don't perform any government function. And despite the fact that teams oftentimes get some funding and resources from the state or from cities or from municipalities to help build and construct stadiums, they are not really intertwined with the government. 
since they're not a government, they're not intertwined, they don't perform a state function, we can establish that they are not state actors. The courts have actually reiterated this in the 1994 lawsuit, Long versus the NFL, in which case an NFL player sued the league after he tested positive for anabolic steroids, claiming that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. The district court, which ruled on the case, though, said that Long had failed to sufficiently show a connection between the actions of the city and city officials and the NFL. The court went on to say that Long was suspended based on independent medical conclusions in the NFL's drug testing policy, which the state had no influence over, which is the long way of saying that there is no state action. Applying this to all other professional leagues, we can conclude that professional sport leagues are not state actors, so they can drug test their athletes without violating the Fourth Amendment. But what about other sport leagues or organizations like, for example, the NCAA? Well, you should already know the answer to this one, since we talked about the NCAA and defining state actors above. Remember we said the NCAA, just like professional sport leagues, is not a state actor. And as a result, they can drug test just like professional leagues can without worrying about violating a student athlete's Fourth Amendment. However, the conversation changes slightly when we look at, instead of the NCAA drug testing the student athletes, the university or the college drug testing the athletes. Where we're talking about a public or private college, both of them are state actors, which means they meet the first element needed for the Fourth Amendment. We already noted that the second element was there because drug testing is constituted as a search. So now let's move to look at the third element and the question of if the search is reasonable, which means we have to evaluate why the college or university is conducting the search and we have to look at the scope of that search. So let's look at the Ohio State University athletic department since I have some familiarity with them from working with them and being an athlete there. They actually provide a pretty good statement and explanation for why they're conducting the search. And they say, quote, the Department of Athletics at The Ohio State University advocates the development of healthy and responsible lifestyle for student athletes during their years of eligibility. They go on to say, quote, substance abuse, dependence, crimes, and other situations which occur while under the influence of mood-altering subjects are a major health and safety hazard in our society. The use of illegal substances and drugs is a crime and will not be condoned. The use of performance-enhancing drugs is detrimental to student health and as a form of cheating constitutes unacceptable behavior. Alcohol use by student-athletes who are under the legal drinking age in Ohio is against the law. For those student-athletes who are of legal drinking age in Ohio, excessive alcohol use is ill-advised and strongly discouraged, end quote. In other words, colleges like Ohio State are drug-testing student-athletes primarily to keep the athletes healthy and make sure they're not cheating the sport. Ohio State goes on to further note the scope of their search, stating, quote, drug tests will be conducted for mood-altering and performance-enhancing substances, end quote. And then they outline that all drug tests will use urine analysis and be non-invasive. Taking all this together, it can be said then that college drug testing of student-athletes is reasonable in purpose and scope, which then brings us to the fourth element of government concern. As we talked about previously, in evaluating this, we look to the degree of intrusion of the test. While certain types of drug testing, like blood tests, can actually be fairly intrusive, collecting urine, which is how colleges test for drugs and student-athletes, and then analyzing that away from the individual, 
that is actually found by the courts to be a non-invasive form of testing. When you couple this with the fact that student athletes, as a part of playing sports in general, already have to submit their bodies to things like physicals in order to play, the courts have said that drug testings by schools is not intrusive. Because we're not being intrusive, we have a fairly low standard that we have to set in order for the government to show that the interest in their search outweighs that small degree of intrusion. And the Supreme Court in 1995, in a case of Verona versus Acton, actually established what the government's interest is in performing drug tests in searching student-athletes. And they said, quote, Deterring drug use by our nation's school children is at least as important as enhancing efficient enforcement of our nation's laws against the importation of drugs. School years are the time when the physical, psychological, and addictive effects of drugs are most severe. They went on to say, quote, It must not be lost that this program, aka drug testing, is directed more narrowly to drug use by school athletes, where the risk of immediate physical harm to the drug user or those with whom he or she is playing his sport is particularly high. Apart from the psychological effects, which include impairment of judgment, slow reaction time, and a lessening of perception of pain, the particular drugs screened for by the district's policy have been demonstrated to pose substantial physical risk to athletes, end quote. If we take all of these legal elements together, we can conclude, and the courts have supported, that while college student-athletes do have a right to Fourth Amendment protections from illegal search and seizures, and even though drug testing does constitute a reasonable search, Schools do not need a warrant to conduct drug testing, even if there's no suspicion of drug use, due to the fact that the intrusion on privacy is very minute, and it is outweighed by the government's interest of protecting student-athletes from the consequences of drug use. This line of reasoning not only applies to colleges and their student-athletes, but also high school and middle school student-athletes as well. The courts have found that the Fourth Amendment does provide some protection for student-athletes when it comes to different types of testing. In 2000, the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled in a case that even though the courts found in that previous case in Verona that urine sampling for drug testing was acceptable, using urine to test if a student-athlete was pregnant did not constitute a reasonable search because the school did not have a legitimate government concern that they were protecting. So in that case... A school or a college cannot come in and force a student-athlete to take a pregnancy test. If they wanted to require them to, they would have to get a search warrant, which being pregnant doesn't constitute a crime, so they would not be able to do that. So there is some protection for student-athletes that is granted by the Fourth Amendment. In addition to drug testing, we as sport managers also see the Fourth Amendment potentially come into play when we're dealing with hosting events. Think of this. The last time you went to a professional or college sporting event, did you have to walk through a metal detector? Did you have your bag searched? Did they wand you? Well, all three of those things happen all the time. And if you underwent them, then you underwent a search. Now, we already know that if this is happening in a professional arena, that the organization is not a state actor, so therefore there was no violation of the Fourth Amendment. But what about if you were at a college or high school sporting event and they searched your bag? They didn't have a search warrant, so how come they get to do that? 
Well again, let's quickly go through the four elements to determine if the search was legal. The first element is an easy one, is there state action? We've already talked about this and have established that yes, colleges and high schools are state actors. The second element, does walking through a metal detector or having someone go through your bag constitute a search? Well, the things that are in the bag or in your pockets are not being exposed to the general public. But you have to remember that where you are matters. You might have a legitimate expectation to privacy for something that's in your purse or school bag, but since you are in public, that expectation is far less. So while you have a degree of expectation of privacy, exactly what that degree is depends on the third and the fourth element. Which brings us to looking at the reason for conducting the search in the first place. These type of searches at stadiums and events are done to help protect public safety. The people putting on the event actually have a legal obligation to protect fans. This is founded in negligence theory, which is talked about in a past podcast that we did. So searching people as they walk in for weapons to help ensure that no dangerous items are brought into the stadium justifies the reason for the search. And we also have to look at the scope of the search. Remember, we can't just do whatever we wanted. We have to be very specific, and the scope of the search has to be tied to the reason. So searching someone's bag for a weapon or having them walk through a metal detector to search what's directly on their person actually is reasonable in search and tied directly to the purpose. So we have all the third element met, which means we now need to determine if the government's interest that is being served outweighs the intrusion. The interest we already kind of pointed to is to protect the general public. Most people would argue that this is fairly substantial. So given that the intrusion of walking through a metal detector or having someone look through your bag is quite minor, the public expectation of privacy and the fact that in public your expectation of privacy is far less than it is at home, we can easily argue that even though there is state action and that a search occurred, the actor doing the search can proceed legally without a warrant. And though I didn't find any court cases that speak directly to this, I would make the argument that the same basic principles apply to any public space that we use for a sporting event, not just a college stadium and arena, but also a high school stadium arena, or a public park that hosts soccer games or football games, or a public tennis courts or public basketball courts, or a recreation center that is public. All of those places, there is state action, and they might have the right to perform a search when entering into that space to ensure the protection of the individuals that are there. Where does that leave us in our conversation today? Well, we've learned a lot about the background and the history of the Fourth Amendment, highlighting not only where the amendment came from, but that the major purpose of the amendment is to protect individuals' rights to privacy. We also broke down the legal elements of the law, and we highlighted the two most common ways that we see the law applied in sports, in medical or drug testing, and in bag inspection and metal detectors at events. We highlighted that state actors can legally require drug tests, and they can legally search you as you enter into a stadium, as long as the reason behind those actions speaks to an important function of the government, which outweighs the degree of intrusion on the individual, meaning the Fourth Amendment does not protect us from these searches and that state actors do not need a warrant to conduct these specific searches. We also highlighted that the state cannot just do whatever they want because 
certain types of searches, like pregnancy tests on student-athletes, do not serve a compelling government interest, and thus individuals are protected from them by the Fourth Amendment. Schools that require student-athletes to get them are therefore in violation of the amendment and are subject to litigation. But did we miss anything? Are there any other questions that you have about the government's right to search and seize items? If so, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us and stay up to date on our latest podcast episodes and send us your recommendations for what topics you would like to see tackled next. Until that next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.